Hello and welcome and happy Friday. Hope you're going to have a good weekend. It's This Is Going Well, I think, with David Cooper. I am David Cooper. It's This Is Going Well, I think. The show where no one's listening. The show where no one cares. The show where every episode's the last episode. Today, science stories, science news, and everything in between. And by in between, I mean me mostly sounding like an idiot and our guests mostly sounding reasonably intelligent. Dan Riskin, science educator, biologist of bats, evolutionary biologist also, will join us after this amazing music. had some scheduling issues Dan and they're not to do with the time they're to do with the the method in which scheduling has happened yeah it's been a it's been a hard time for me in my calendar you've really thrown some ripples through our relationship and caused me and my calendar to have some some hardship but we're working through it we're working through it I don't know you came off a little adversarial when I sent an invite titled Dan Riskin to you you responded that is that is not helpful to me at all which you know what I, I concede it's not yeah I had this calendar I was like what am I doing on that Friday or whatever it was we were taping last time it said Dan Riskin was all it said in my calendar and I was like all of my things are Dan Riskin that doesn't help me it, I'm sure that's helpful for you literally everything you do can be titled Dan Riskin at simplest form <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so I was like, oh, I guess I'm doing a thing then. But anyway, so this time you fixed it by sending it David Cooper, which I am glad to know probably stood in your calendar as this. You were just, what is that? No use to me at all. I, I felt your pain. Rather than resolve it by naming it Dan Risk and David Cooper interview, I wanted to experience, Yeah, I wanted to have a little empathy to know what you were going through. And we scheduled this a, a while ago, so when I came to this week and I looked at my calendar, I thought, what the fuck is that? Really? It worked? Yes! yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then it's worth it, because I thought you were just sort of going through the motions, but if you felt pain, then okay, we're even now. We're good. We can move forward. From now on, Let's. why don't we just put a third person's name on there that has nothing to with either of us why don't we put like david lee roth oh wow and then that'll be i mean but then it's david that'd be like uh, you know i'm trying to think of a famous dan oh there aren't any daniel day lewis oh sure well yeah some have heard of him sure there's not a lot of famous dans are there daniel boone i don't know who that is uh daniel tiger from um mr rogers neighborhood uh famous dance wow Dan Aykroyd, fine. Danny DeVito, Daniel Craig. Okay, there's lots of fans. Daniel Radcliffe. But a lot of, they call themselves Daniel. They take themselves a little more seriously than I do. Well, Danny doesn't. Danny DeVito. Danny DeVito's a national treasure. Man, that guy is... He is amazing. Ah, He's a real patriot. I don't know why. When I call people patriots, it's usually because they stand up against the state. Oh, yeah. Danny DeVito hasn't done that, but, you know. No, but he has sort of... He's taking a legacy of, like... 
he was on the edge and he was kind of funny on taxi and all that stuff. And like, he's in a couple movies where he kind of plays a bad guy and okay. Right. And like, he could have just put it to bed and he would have been beloved, but then he goes on the Philadelphia thing and just is so crude as to be unbelievable and really just changes the way you see him completely. And it just takes it up a notch in a big way. I just, I think he's, he makes that show. He is, more than 50% of why that show is as funny as it is. He's amazing. Yeah, yeah, he's a real patriot. I, I reserve that for people like, I don't know, like Anita Hill, Monica Lewinsky. If we think of Canada, Henry Morgenthaler, people who either get hard done by by the state and they stand up for what's right, or people who just get shit on by the state, like Monica Lewinsky, uh, when they shouldn't. These people, to me, are real patriots. But I don't know, I put Danny DeVito on that list. Just feels like the right word for him, does it? Yeah. Yeah, or what's the WikiLeaks guy? Um, is he a patriot? I don't know. He's really been smeared, but well, is that the deep state? Not important. Dan, we're going to do Dan, 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 Dan this week because a couple weeks ago when we spoke, it was David, 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 David. And while it was fun and I like doing that, I actually really enjoy the things you bring to radio, to this podcast. Science stuff, Dan. But don't you think I, I, you know, I went, I listen to your podcast often, and it's it's fun sometimes to listen to the ones that I'm on because then I got to relive that conversation with you about how you escaped Burning Man in one piece, and I don't know, that was a fun conversation for me. I really, I, I just feel like if you're listening to this, this isn't the good one. You should go back and listen to the time I was on last time and listen to, to my conversation with David Cooper about Burning Man because that's a good, good, good interview. This one's going to be complete junk compared to that one. It's funny you say that ever, always really, ever since I did this as a hobbyist, I did it professionally, I'm doing it now. Whenever people hear me, my first instinct is, that's not the good one. Listen to this other one. Yeah. But then I realize that's just, what is that, insecurity? Being Jewish? I don't know, but... I don't know, but you know what? I, I've had a very similar experience about... So this is this is a, like kind of out of left field, but uh, the guy who I did my master's with is this great bat biologist uh, who is... Uh, he's basically retired now, but he's got a big birthday coming up, and so a bunch of people are sending in pictures and letters and all this stuff. And I just remember when I was his grad student, he was already, you know, well-established, and he was, you know, in the administration at the university, and, like, it was clear he was sort of, like, on his way toward retirement. And he had all these stories about the day, like, when he would take his students to Africa, and they would catch the slit-faced bat, you know, and the, a bunch of lions showed up. And like, he had all these amazing stories. And it just felt like what we're doing will never be as good as that. But then you talk to students who are doing bat work now, and they refer back to the days when I was a student, and we were going and doing other stuff in other places. And those are the glory days to them. And it, when you're in it, you're not like... You don't realize you're in the glory days. And so, you know, it's the same thing for your conversations. Like, no, the last one was good, but here we're creating magic and it won't feel like magic for a week, but it will, maybe. So we're going to reflect on today and say, this is the benchmark from which all other shows should be measured. But right now, while we're doing it, we think, oh, this kind of sucks. Yeah, right. Starting now. It's really good. Starting now. A yeah. bat biologist. I, why don't you just go by that? I feel like you have all these titles. You're a, you're a science expert. You're an evolutionary biologist. You're Dr. Daniel K. Riskin, PhD. Mm. But I just think bat biologist would be your best uh, self-identification. No? 
for you that works but then like when they're like okay and for ctv national news today we have to we have a uh, earthquake so we brought in bat biologist <laughs> i mean i would if i were watching that i would be even more i would if i had one of those what is it a nielsen box or a nelson box yes like a ratings box for old television in my house and i had to pick how much i liked what i was watching if i saw that i'd rate it 10 out of 10 yeah exactly it'd be great and i would tie it back and be like well to, to our knowledge no bats were injured but we're still looking through the debris <laughs> yeah but so anyway i use i use more general uh terms like i'm an evolutionary biologist uh, really i'm a bat expert I, that's what all my papers are on but you know if, if a whale gets beached i can talk to that because i know enough about bats to sort of expand it to whales i assume they work the same way in general they have lungs same thing but for your gigs that pay uh is this one who knows <laughs> You are contracted in as a general science expert. Do you ever feel like when you get called on to a serious story that's very far from bat biology, you're like, oh, shit, am I qualified for this? Absolutely. And we're, yeah, Nobel Prizes are the worst because they're like, oh, they awarded a Nobel Prize in physics this morning. Can you talk about it in 20 minutes? And it's like, <laughs> what's it about? And then you're like, oh, they did something involving this. And so then you're just scrambling and like trying to find something in the reporting and in their papers that isn't there. Because the person who's getting the Nobel Prize and their institution, they don't even know about it, right? So like Donna Strickland won the Nobel Prize. Uh, she's a Canadian uh, laser researcher. And she didn't know about it. She didn't, there was no Wikipedia page for her until the day she got the Nobel Prize. And then she very quickly had a, a Wikipedia page. But, uh, you know, like scrambling to do research can be a real challenge in those because you don't have the context. And meanwhile, the people who choose the award have got all this context. And so they try to present stuff and talk about why the person's important and give you some stuff. But fundamentally, it's, it's a little bit of a challenge to figure out how to tell that story. And when you're lucky, it'll be that the person was in a rock band with the guitarist from Rage Against the Machine when she was in university and then you're like oh okay i have an in i can talk about that if nothing else or it's the nobel prize in physics regarding bat physics which is a whole new branch that got discovered this week maybe who knows i mean maybe it'll be me and then it'll be very easy to talk about how i got here but there is no nobel prize for biology just for the record so that's why i'm not waiting for one same with math there's the fields and then same with computer science there's the turing award it's there's only a few fields that get a nobel prize yeah physics chemistry literature, physiology, and medicine. Oh, uh, peace, whatever that is. <laughs> Sells, but who's buying? So let me get, I got a great joke for you. Okay. This is maybe the best joke ever told. So if you get asked to talk about a Nobel Prize in physics last minute, and you don't know anything about the branch of physics, and you're really worried, you might end up feeling like a Higgs bozo. <laughs> Uh, that, that I like that. that. That isn't the worst joke I've ever heard at all. A lot of setup for not that much punch. Uh, I don't know what a Higgs boson is. I just know that physicists always talk about it. Sure. I mean, that joke was both funny and not funny at the same time. Boom. Yeah, there you go. Wait, the, are those the particles? It's not light that exists? No, that's, that's just a Schrodinger's cat reference. Yeah. Schrodinger's humor. Yeah. Dan, I want to talk about a sea creature. Oh, okay. Actually, you know what? Let's do you want to do, let's do that one last. What? Why? No, let's talk about the sea creature. What? Which one? Oh, the sea creature. That one. Oh my God! No, let's talk about that right now because it's amazing. I was like, "What is this?" I'm looking at photos. I'm scared. Is this thing going to infect my brain? Is this an alien from inner space? That's what I call the deep ocean. Hmm. I. It's a weird jellyfish-looking multi-creature creature. Tell me about this thing that Japanese researchers or just an underwater photographer found 
in Okinawa, Japan, off the coast. Jesus Christ, this thing is terrifying. Uh, this guy goes, I mean, if, if, to make it a little less scary, it's only like five, five, five millimeters across or something like that. It's like less than a centimeter. Yeah, but COVID molecules are five millimeters across and they can kill you. No, no, they're much smaller than that. COVID molecules are very small. I know. Um, this is visible. Um, so he's swimming and he sees this thing and it looks like a swimming sort of almost jellyfish. It's got an orange belly or brownish and then it's got these whitish legs that are swimming and sometimes they sit totally still and then sometimes they all move at the same time and he doesn't know what it is and so he takes some pictures and then he captures it and brings it back to a lab and then takes some videos and pictures of it and it's weird and like i don't know to some people things in the water they all look the same but for people that look at things in the water they have a sense of like okay that's a this and that's a that okay that's a jellyfish that's a box jellyfish i know what those things are this one people are like no wait what that doesn't look like any of those things. And so the, the most famous uh, of these people is a woman named Rebecca Helm. Rebecca Helm has a Twitter account where she is like always advocating for obscure sea creatures. And she uh, she's wonderful. And she's very good at, at uh, communicating all this stuff. And she happened to work across the hall from me when I was a postdoc at Brown. So we knew each other back in the day. And she's just, she's fabulous. And she's really taken that platform and especially Twitter, which is a shame it's burning down. Um, but she's really like given sort of a voice to all these weird creatures. Anyway, she could not figure out what it was and nobody could. And so finally some scientists got, they said, can you send us that sample? And the guy who had taken all those pictures, fortunately had saved it. He'd put it in formaldehyde, uh, which is you're not supposed to use formaldehyde anymore. You're supposed to use ethanol. And anyway, he saved it and they were able to salvage it, but it was pretty degraded because formaldehyde's not great. It's pretty tough on tissues. And they managed to get a good look at it. And what they found out is that it's not one organism it's actually thousands of organisms or more than a thousand organisms so the ball at the center is a whole bunch of individual animals that each of which looks almost like a sperm it's got like this this big ball for a head and then a really long tail and it's all bunched up and there's a whole bunch of them together and they're all just sticking together and then around the outside all those legs are worms stuck by their tails to the ball almost like the snake on a medusa's head but here's the thing all those worms are the same species as the balls they did the, they looked at the dna and it's all the same species so it's like this species has two different body shapes and then they all get together like to form the, like the what are those guys that turn into a rocket ship the the mighty morphin power rangers it's like that they all jump together and make this giant beast that, that out of their bodies or whatever and they've made this creature looking thing that is that looks like a jellyfish but it's really about 20 of these leg like creatures that are just each of worm and then about a thousand of these other creatures in the middle and they work together and they swim in synchrony and they all flap at the same time to make this thing swim and look like a jellyfish and the thing is they are parasitic flatworms is what they are and so clearly this is an adaptation to get eaten by a fish that eats jellyfish looking things. Wow, so all, all these flatworms are banding together in the hopes that they get eaten so they can infect a host? Yeah, yeah, and they look like an edible thing that you would be swimming around in the water that you would eat if you were a dumb fish that was waiting to get parasites. And so uh, nobody's ever, like, 
there's this one sample of it like people are going back and looking for it but they haven't found more 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 versions of it so um very exciting and it just like a huge surprise because you see a creature and you're like i, I don't know what that is it turns out not to be one creature but to be several i don't know i just the fact that nature has that stuff still sitting out there that nobody knows about and it's waiting to be found is like the reason i turn over rocks every time i go to the beach it's like just nature's full of surprises and that's the fun of science that's the fun of nature that's the fun of the world it makes you wonder in a million years will something that looks like delicious kfc you know these flatworms have adapted to make it look like our food people food and then you eat the KFC and you're infected by a thousand flatworms. It's terrifying what we don't know. And the future of parasites, I don't know. Yeah. That was my... It reminds me of the, you know, there's like that uh, snapping turtle that holds its mouth open and its tongue looks like a fish. Yeah. And it wiggles its tongue. And then a bigger fish comes over to eat that fish. And then the turtle eats that fish. It's the same trick. I've also seen fishes whose tongues have been replaced by a parasitic crabby looking thing in their mouth functioning as their tongue because they cut off the blood circulation in their tongue their tongue dies and then this parasite replaces their tongue how do you know your tongue isn't replaced by a parasite right now dan you don't i, d I don't know that i don't know whether it is or not but uh, i don't think it is but i don't know i don't know uh, yeah but parasites like there are two things i love david cooper well three if you include david cooper mm. i love david cooper and I love parasites, and I love organisms working together as a unit. I love sort of swarm intelligence and stuff like that, like the whole school of fish or the swarm or the swarm of bees or the, the murmuration of starlings. All of those stories are wonderful. And the fact that this ultimately is one of those stories, and it's about parasites, is just icing on the icing. It's just so good. Well, I'm sort of a parasite on your otherwise flawless career <laughs> as a science educator, <laughs> and I work with my producer Danny on this show uh, as two parasites, and you are the host, so we really are the things you love combined. You are very, very kind to say that, but it is certainly a mutualism because I get much joy, oh, much joy. Oh, what a guy. Okay, you want to talk about AI a bit, and I also want to talk about AI a bit because I've been playing with ChatGPT. It helps me not write copy. Like, I write my own copy for little comedy things, for this podcast, whatever, but I have dyslexia, so I'm like, hey, could you do a pass for grammar and spelling? I use ChatGPT to do that all the time. But sometimes it overwrites, it makes the paragraphs too long, it changes too many of my weird words or weird sentence structure that I like because I think it's humorous yeah. in the name of correcting it. And so I have to give it a secondary prompt saying, hey, can you actually make it more like the original copy? Or hey, could you make this more silly? Or hey, could you dumb down this language? Or, hey, could you make this more conversational? And then the second, the third, the fourth prompt is usually what I want. I might do a couple edits on top of that when I get the text back. Sure. But it's correct. The grammar errors that my otherwise dyslexic brain would produce are mostly gone, I hope. And so this idea of getting something back from an AI and saying, hey, I don't want it quite this way and massaging it is something that I do to make it improve its work. And there is some research now that says that what I'm doing is similar to something that anyone can do to improve AI work quality. Did I do a good job of summarizing this story and then relating it to something that I do? Yes, you did. I mean, let me throw in one thing, which is I have used ChatGPT to proofread things as well. But what I do, and this is just a suggestion, but what I do is I say, 
give me a bulleted list of all the places you think this needs to be fixed. And then I paste it in and then it gives me the list and then I, I then it won't change anything without me knowing and I can decide whether I want to take them or not. And so that, I found that's a good way to, to catch problems that I'm having. What this story shows is that like, I get why that helps with writing, right? When you say, go try to make it more conversational. And like, if you work with, like, let's say you want ChatGPT to write a really good sonnet and it does the first draft and you're like you know what i want you to make it sound less like it was written in the 1600s but i I still wanted to get across some of their emotion and you work back and forth and then after a lot of prompting it does a good job that's intuitive to me for creating text but for doing math that seems like no if i ask chat gpt to like solve this math problem I, I shouldn't be like massaging its ego while I like help it like, oh, that was pretty good, but can you try again? But there's a new paper out that shows that if you are asking chat GPT or other large language models to do math problems, you improve their performance if you use the phrase, take a deep breath and work on this problem step by step. If you put that before the question or after it, I guess, but as part of the question, it does better. So the, the way they did this is they have these these uh, these databases of math questions that are word math questions where like, you know, the, the problem is written out as a word like Linda bakes 12 batches of cookies. Each batch is three halves as big as the batch made by Deborah, you know, something like that where you have to like keep track of a bunch of stuff. ChatGPT can do those, but it will do a better job if you say take a deep breath and work on this problem step by step. And to me, that is loopy scary it's scary because like no oh no dan no it's not alive artificial intelligence isn't really intelligent but like at some point like that is what i would do if i had a kid and i was trying to get them to do the math problem i would say okay just slow down and do this step by step and then the kid would do a better job but do i need to say that to chat gpt does it really do it better is it thinking what the heck any rationale on why this improves or AI models are so different, it's hard to say. The rationale they offer is that what happens with a large language model, of course, is that it's trying to predict the next word that comes, right? And that's all they do is just try to predict what comes next in the sentence based on what's been said already. And so they have this database that they've been trained on. And when you say something that it's seen before in its training set, it goes and looks at that training set to find the stuff that matches. And there is a whole bunch of math training available on the internet or wherever it got its information from, but only a subset of that has the words, take a deep breath and work on this problem step by step. And on average, those da- those pieces of the data set are better at math because those are being taught by people that are taking a little bit more time to do it instead of just pounding on an answer. And so chat GPT or the large language model ends up giving an answer that is more closely aligned with the training data that have that kind of a frame of mind. And that's why it gives you a better answer. So I'm going to restate this in my idiot way of thinking, and you tell me if it's right, because I want to simplify this, because that was kind of hard to follow for me. Let's say I'm trying to get an AI to help me in a math proof. We have some crazy expression in math, and we want to prove that A equals B, okay? Okay. So in the training model, it's found math proofs, but maybe the higher quality math proofs have the phrase, uh, let's think about this step by step. So like a really good math book that's really correct, that has really good proofs, while the author's writing those proofs, maybe they wrote, uh, let's think about this step by step. And then we take a shitty math book 
that has incorrect proofs or out-of-date information or stuff that was then proven wrong. And maybe that author is less likely to use the phrase, let's think about this step by step. So now let's get back to my original proof, my A equals B. When it's searching for ways to maybe solve it, it's more likely to take the good math proof if I ask it to do it step by step. Does that, did I match what you just said? In Yeah. Yeah, except that it's the last thing you said, I think I disagree with, which is when it's thinking about which way to solve it, it goes to this one. It's not actually solving it. It's just parroting the websites that are more correct. And that's the, the fundamental thing that that is true about these things is that they don't solve it. They don't have a model in their head of A or B. They're just spouting out the way the sentence is supposed to look when somebody asks about an A or B. And they end up giving you the right answer, but it's it's not because it understands it. And that's the 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 emergent property that it seems like you're coaching it as though it understands it take a deep breath and work on this step by step it feels like you're telling it something that it would only be effective if it were thinking about it but it's not thinking about it at all you're just pushing it towards a certain subset of its of its training data that is more likely to give a correct answer so i i just think it's a it's a neat phenomenon it i can kind of get my head around it but it does give me the heebie-jeebies because it does feel more and more like AI is something where you're going to have to be like, oh, no, don't. I didn't mean to hurt your feelings the way I wrote that prompt. And you're going to have to like treat it like a person, which defeats the whole purpose of artificial intelligence. Well, it's funny you mention you say it's not thinking about it. It's trying to pick what word to use next. And while it's picking a word, it's more likely to look at the good data. And so it's more likely to pick a more correct word, but it's not thinking. That's what you just said. Uh, But then you started talking about emergent properties, which I find fascinating because if you take an individual neuron in my brain, an individual individual cell in my brain that cell isn't thinking but thinking consciousness is an emergent property of all these cells working together at least that's my understanding i think it's our best understanding of consciousness oh god that is why i'm talking to you about this yes yeah you're totally right that is such a good point so if it's just searching for the best word and it's more likely to pick from a better set if you because the better sets have let's think step by step and my prompt head let's think by step by step is thinking now an emergent property of a system with a huge training set and a huge amount of computing power and a huge amount of memory with which to store this training set oh boy is thinking an emergent property of a very good ai that appears to be thinking even though we know how it's doing and it's just trying to predict the next word. Right. Yeah. I mean, what you're saying is, is our thinking an emergent property for the same reasons that it's thinking is an emergent property. That's my best description of consciousness, my best description of thinking. It's an emergent property of the brain. But what is the brain? A collection of neurons, a collection of cells, just like the cells in our skin, just they're a little different, I guess. So what is thinking? These are the deep questions. If you have an AI that looks and smells like it's thinking, is thinking an emergent property of the AI. I, I don't know. I, I don't know. And then it's like, okay, are, if our feelings an emergent property of the AI? Because feelings, being happy, being sad, being content, the deep feelings, they appear to be emergent properties of our brain. So if we cre- create a good enough AI and it appears to be conscious, is consciousness an emergent property from it? I don't know, probably not. But these are the deep questions, Dan. And when you said emergent property, it, that's what really kind of triggered me because I think all the deep stuff that makes us human, all the deep stuff that makes brains turn into conscious beings are just emergent properties of all those cells working together. And now we're back to all those parasites working to be- together as the ocean parasite. Is it a sea creature? <laughs> is it a jellyfish? <laughs> In the future, will it become a jellyfish? I don't know. The emergent property that I think about it often, I, I end up talking about dogs a lot 
and my neighbor just got a puppy and I've got a dog that barked. I had an electrician come to the house today and my dog was barking like crazy and driving me crazy. So I don't know, dogs are on my mind. But the fact that I have a dog is related to the fact that I find puppies cute, which is related to the fact that all people find puppies cute, which is related to the fact that puppies kind of look like babies, which is related to the fact that our brains are wired to make us take care of our babies. And so because... And so it's an emergent property that we tend to have pets, that we tend to have dogs, like all these things that sort of like find their way back to, to first principles. And then, but the idea that consciousness goes back to just neurons and the pup that I have a dog goes back to neurons and the emergent properties. It's a, it's a, it's like a drain. It's like a spiraling drain. So yeah, that's the thing with this artificial intelligence stuff, man. It can, it can really get you navel gazing and really send you down a tube and then you're like, ah, do I just throw in the towel and just pretend it's alive and just go with that? Which is where it feels like it's heading. Because eventually it's going to be on my phone and it's going to be a thing that I talk to and it's going to be my assistant. You won't be able to tell the difference between the thinking done by an AI and the thinking done by a person. I think in the future, you won't, wouldn't be able to tell the difference between an assistant that would only be able to communicate with you via email, texting, well, I think with voice modeling and, and uh, speech modeling, actually, you will be able to have a conversation with them because that stuff's getting pretty good. But uh, let's just say this. In the future, you may not be able to tell the difference between a robot and a person. Like you could spend an hour with it. And unless you cut it open and watch it bleed or something, yeah, you may not be able to tell the difference. And then at that point, like because you're unable to tell the difference, what, what is thinking? What, is, what are feelings? I will tell you the difference. I'll tell you what the difference is. If you take the time to write me an email about, take this for example, right? So like you and I are having a conversation and I find this interesting because you're a person. But if I were talking and all of a sudden I found out that I was talking to uh, a very good artificial intelligence, I would get bored instantly. Like I'm not interested in talking to AI. I feel like there's a value to social interaction that is that comes from the fact that it's a person. And maybe I'm thinking like a Luddite and maybe people in a future generation won't care. And, uh, you know, they'll be just as interested in talking to data as Picard. But I think that, I think that if you turned out, like, I don't want to read anything written by AI. That's to me, like, it could be on a topic I really like, yeah, but I don't want to read it. But if, if a person wrote it, I'm in. There's a couple things to say there. A, when I'm reading computer programming, tutorials, things like that, it, some of them are AI-assisted or AI-written. And I, as soon as I suss out whether a website's just a blog of AI posts, I'm not interested. Because then AI doesn't, even if it's correct, the thing is if there's errors in it, like the AI is not going to have intimate knowledge of what it means to make mistakes, why we don't make these mistakes, how to avoid mistakes. But all that aside, I agree with you. If I found out you were an AI right now, I'd become incredibly bored. I would not find this to be art at all. I wouldn't give a shit about this conversation, even if it was exactly the same. But if you can't tell the difference, then what? Like, what, what, I've only met you in person once, but I, I'm pretty sure... But we did. We did, but I'm pretty sure we'd have the same relationship with each other if we hadn't met in person. In the future, you may not be able to tell the difference between a real me and a fake me. So then what? Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people I interact with that I've only ever seen over Zoom. And there are people that I haven't seen in 20 years who I just, I just actually 15 years is an exaggeration. But right before this, I had a conversation with some people that uh, I was in grad school with that I have not seen in person since then, right? And so it'd be pretty easy to throw a filter and an AI and like, I wouldn't be able to tell if it was really them or not. The only solace you should take is I don't think it'll happen in your lifetime that the this so-called Turing test. Why do you not think that? Well, 
my worry is when AI gets good enough to improve computers. Like everyone's talking about the Neuralink thing, the thing that's uh, the clinical trials for Elon Musk startup that he basically wants to have a connection to your brain, a computer connection to your brain. That's the short of it is my understanding. But the only way we're going to be able to solve the brain problem, I think, and the, the solve the problem of connecting a computer to a brain and with the complexities that come with that, the risks that come with the surgery, uh, the, the fine grain connecting of nerves and testing their electrical impulses, all the problems associated with figuring out the brain and figuring it out how to connect to it. I think AI is going to solve that problem. Like I don't think a programmer sitting at his computer and a neuro neuroscientist sitting at their desk with some CAD software designing what this would look like. I don't think they're going to have the brain power to solve that problem. But I think AI will. And so I don't even know where I was going with this point, but eventually AI is going to get so good at creating new and better computers to power itself. That's, we're going to get to the tech singularity thing, which I don't really want to discuss with you, but it, that that's like a like an exponential curve, my worry is, unless there's some limit. Right? Do you know what Moore's law is? Yep, that processing power keeps growing exponentially. Yeah, basically doubling or 1.6 every year, every number of years. Uh, but basically, the the quality of of our ability to process things uh, is growing exponentially. But it may hit some natural limit. Right now, they're they're guessing that the uh, width of a wire on a circuit can only be what six or eight uh, atoms wide. And so they say when they hit that level, basically, if you think of a circuit board as a bunch of traces connecting things, once you hit a certain width of a trace, you can't go any smaller because an electron can't flow through it. So I think they're saying six atoms, six uh, copper atoms or whatever wide. Do you know about this stuff? I've never heard about that. But the, so, but the point is there's going to be some limit. We're going to reach a, reach a physical limit or something where we're going to stop having exponential growth of processor power. Yeah, it's like a, an event horizon on a star. Like once a star gets a certain size, it, it goes supernova. It can't get bigger. So basically, is there some fundamental limit of improving the quality of AI? And I guess by proxy, improving the speed of computers that we don't know about that physics imposes on us. So maybe that limit will save us. But what I'm trying to say is eventually Eventually, this growth is going to become so steep that technology is going to become so good that all these things that I'm saying, like, oh, you won't be able to tell the difference between an AI and a human, is potentially going to happen. It's just a question of when. Yeah. I hope it's not in my lifetime, Dan. I think it will be in our lifetime. I mean, already it's pretty good. At, if you Like, if I'm chatting with GPT versus chatting with a human, I really can't tell. Well, a trained person who understands language models still can tell. But eventually, someone who's trained and understands how ChatGPT works won't be able to tell. That's the Turing test in, in its... Well, we can't tell from photos. Like, a photo of an invented person and a photo of a real person, people who are trained can't tell. We're there already. I think deep fakes, if, if you can tell the difference now in the future, very near future, you won't be able to, which is scary because it means any news can be faked, but that was always true, you know. I think I've talked about this with you or someone else, this golden age of news. Yeah, yeah, you're the one that planted that idea in my head. Yeah, 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 yeah. After cameras and video cameras were invented, but before the ability to fake video yes. and fake uh, photos without basically the, the entire power of a state and tens of thousands of people working on the fake going frame by frame. You know, it was always fakeable, but in general, it, it was very difficult. Now it's becoming increasingly easy. And so it's back to the days of print where anyone can write anything and send it off to another country and you'd believe it or not. But who knows? You know, I think we're coming back to that era, which is scary. Yeah. 
But yeah, I hope this singularity of tech, which is to say that this exponential growth of tech and by extension AI happens after my lifetime, not because I'm scared of it, not because I think the robots are going to take over the world and kill us all, although they might. It's because it's just going to reshape society in such unimaginable ways that the basic premise of how we live, the structure of our relationships, the structure of our families, what we like to do for fun, me doing this, Dan, this type of performance, it just becomes meaningless in a, in a world where it's so easily generated. And that's what kind of scares me about it. Just that I, I like certain things about our society and to reshape it in unimaginable ways causes, you know, the fear of the unknown. So that's my biggest fear with this stuff. Not that the robots are going to kill us all. Yeah, it's interesting. For me, the thing that AI doesn't touch yet and can't get anywhere close to is the jellyfish thing, the parasite thing. It's the wonder of nature, right? And to me, that's part of the promise of AI and part of the promise of this like new thing that we're getting into is that there might be new beauty that we've never imagined before that'd be kind of cool. But I... I get a thrill from going into a forest and finding and seeing a bird that I didn't know existed. And there are lots of birds I don't know about, right? Because I'm not a bird guy, so I don't read the books. I just go out there and I'm like, what the heck is that? And then I look at the book and I'm like, oh, that exists. That's so crazy. And so- What's scary though, is we're talking about brain implants that let you interface your brain with a computer, a neural link or whatever. If that technology comes to pass in our lifetime, let's say you go to sleep and you don't know whether your wife has connected you to the computer or not and you either wake up in the simulation or wake up in the real world, you go to the woods and see a new bird, and you cannot tell the difference between your wife connecting you to the computer or you not being connected. You wake up and there's no connection, you feel the back of your head and it's, oh, I, I wasn't connected. You are in the simulation though. Right. And I hope that doesn't happen in our lifetime because it just- Okay, yeah, that the whole thing that's sticking into the back of my head part, that, that I also hope doesn't happen in my lifetime. I'm fine with, with uh, with other parts of this, but uh, yeah, I don't want a wire in the back of my head while I'm sleeping. But if AI gets so good at solving problems, it could solve that problem, solve the problem of interfacing a computer with the brain, I think will happen. I just don't know when. Well, there's, so there's a, th a protein paper that just came out where AI, um, AlphaFold is a thing that Google DeepMind made that solves protein problems. And it's done just this amazing job of figuring out all the shapes and functions of all these different proteins, every protein, all the proteins, all of them, like 200 million proteins. And it used to be that if you want to know how a protein worked, you had to know what its shape was. And the only way to know its shape was to measure its shape. And so you had to use crystallography, which is, uh, you know, you basically shoot x-rays at it and you look at how they diffract and then you calculate what the shape of the protein is. And we'd done that for like 170,000 proteins, but in a blink of an eye, AlphaFold figured out the answers for 200 million of them, which is a much larger number than 170,000. And now we have all these proteins, but there's still certain proteins that have regions that don't hold a fixed shape that sort of flap in the wind, so to speak. And sometimes there are proteins that have flappy bits that interact with each other, but we don't really understand how. And that is beyond our abilities with x-ray crystallography, because if it's not staying still, you can't get a good image of it. It's just a blur. And so you've got a blurry part on 
one protein and a blurry part on another protein and you can't figure out why they're connecting but they do and AlphaFold has figured that out right so AlphaFold has been able to figure okay well it's when it's in this part of the flippy flappy when it has this shape and the other one is in this part of the flippy flappy it's in this shape they should fit together just fine and so that's why this protein does this and then the scientists go and they do the experiments to verify and yes indeed that is exactly how these things are connecting so Artificial intelligence is already finding new ways to connect things that we didn't understand. And so the idea that there's going to be an interface between some electrical thing and our brains, that's absolutely within the realm of what artificial intelligence is already working on. It's exactly as you're saying. I'm looking at your numbers here. Scientists by hand worked out 190,000 protein folds. This computer has figured out 200 million and ones that are sufficiently complicated that no person could have the time to understand, yeah, you know, or, or the ability to understand, to, to hold all these variables in their head as they sit down and work on it, so to speak. The example with the neuroscientist and the computer programmer sitting together trying to figure out how to interface with the brain, that's too hard a problem for them, I think. The brain's too complicated. Yeah, and neuroscientists are total dicks. I mean, who can work with them <laughs> on anything, honestly? You can't even have a coffee with them. But this is an, an example of a way in which a computer is solving things that we are unable to. I remember the first time this really happened that I heard about it. It was something called the four-color theorem. Have you ever heard of this one? It's a math proof that says, hey, any map can be drawn where no two borders are shared using four colors. And when I say no two borders are shared, the two countries that share a border don't have the same color. So if, let's say, Canada and the U.S., they would have to have different colors because they share a border. But uh, certain states that exist and they border each other on a point, they actually can share a color because they don't share a border, something like this. Yeah, yeah. Regardless, this was a problem that mathematicians couldn't solve by hand. There were too many corner cases. So someone wrote a computer program to solve all the corner cases to prove the thing true and this there was only like a couple hundred thousand corner cases too long for someone to work out by hand but still you could in your head hold a hundred thousand things if you really split it up amongst a hundred thousand researchers i suppose they could have all come together and solved it but that's an example an understandable example of how a computer did it with ai it's like okay i can't account for ten hundred billion variables every neuron in my brain is a variable i can't account for building something taking into account every neuron but a computer could and that's this is the kind of thing that i'm talking about i think computers will be increasingly able to solve problems that we can't and i think it will change society in ways that we can't imagine i just hope it's not in our lifetime dan i pray ah you go back you keep going back to hope it's not my lifetime i don't know man aren't you curious don't you kind of want to see i am but i'm like still longing for the golden age of radio like i'm the days where howard stern came up like this is the era that i wish i existed in but i wouldn't have been able to have my career in computer stuff if it was that era so I'm, i guess i'm a walking pile of contradictions yeah we all are i mean there is something about but it's only a sliver of the nostalgia you like right i mean there were other things going what, what when was that like that's is that 80s 80s 90s early 90s yeah yeah i mean so you know there was there was good stuff but there was no gps no I would have had to write down the instructions after looking at a fucking map. You'd have to give somebody directions to your house. You'd have to be like, you're going to come to a tree and you're going to turn right. Like, that's the only way they could find your house. I met Miranda on Tinder 10 years ago. Oh, wow. 
I wouldn't have met Miranda, you know, like my, my life would be so different. Uh, and I know that podcasts make a lot of money. I think a bro joking and these various podcasts, but oh, I'm happy for them. I'm happy for them. I'm not happy for bro joking. I mean, I, I don't want to silence the guy. I'm not that hardcore with my leftist views, but I, I don't like what he puts out. Dan, I want to talk about one more thing. If you have time. Yes, I do. Deja vu is something I get a lot, but you came with a story that I found fascinating. It's not called deja vu. It's called jamais vu, which is I've never seen it before. Somehow a study was done where students look at words after writing them and then feel weird or can't recognize them. Yeah. Yeah. You've done this. So like get a piece of paper and a pencil and write the word the and then do that again. The and then write it again. The and then write it again. The and then write it again. The and even just me saying it, write it again. The write it again. The after a while. It doesn't sound like a word anymore, or it doesn't look like a word anymore. Like it goes away, it all of a sudden becomes nonsensical. And you've done this if you've ever had to do any kind of repetitive task where you're like, what is that my hand? Is that the letter T? Does it curve this way or is it supposed to go the other way? I can't remember right now. Like that is apparently called jamais vu. It's, it's rarer than deja vu. Deja vu is where you think you've seen something, but you haven't actually. You just, it seems familiar, but it's not. Jamais vu is the opposite. It's familiar, but you can't recognize it. And so that in a, in a study, uh, researchers were able to make this happen for students by having them write things out over and over and over and over and over. And they were able to get like 70% of people to, to go into this state where they're like, I just don't know what that word is anymore. I can't recognize it. And it's like a neat little self-hack you can do to mess up your own brain. They won an Ig Nobel Prize for it. So the Ig Nobels <laughs> are these awards they give for, for science that's kind of goofy and makes you laugh, but is also good science. Um, and so it's, it's getting a little bit of play that way, but I just think it's neat. I, I'd never really realized there was an opposite to deja vu and there is, and it's easily induced. So I guess my next question for you is I've gotten this without training my brain to get it. Have you, and I'll give you an example of how I've gotten it. Have you ever been writing and then you look at a word, you know, it's spelt right. It could be even a simple word. It happened to me yesterday with the word gear, G E A R gear. Okay. I guess because gear can mean stuff you wear or maybe a gear in a machine. Richard gear. Richard gear. It's the same word, but it's different things. And I'm st- and I meant it uh, gear that you purchase for uh, audio equipment, which is something we've talked about in private and it's boring. Right. You have some radio gear. Yeah. yeah. I s- write this word in a sentence because I'm talking about purchasing gear for a radio station, not important. And I start staring at the word and I'm like, this is not spelled correctly. Although it was. And I get this often, maybe once a week, where I write a word, huh. and then I just stare at it, and I'm like, this isn't correct. This is not the right word. Now, are you typing? You're typing it. Yeah. So you, your autocorrect isn't coming up and f- fixing it or anything. You're just, so you know that it's a word, or you're, presumably it's a word, but it's just not, it just doesn't sit right. I use the word. I know in my rational brain it's spelled correctly, but as I stare at it, it confuses me because it doesn't look right. This is jamais vu, or it's called wordnesia, and it happens to me without hacking my brain. Aren't you lucky? And it happens to my girlfriend Miranda too. Oh, really? And it's such a strange thing, yeah. So anyway, I love that there's a name for it. I love that people are studying it. Um, they, there was a big write-up. They, they did a, there's a, a website called The Conversation where scientists often will go and explain their research uh, for anybody who wants to listen, basically. And there's often some really interesting stuff there. The researchers who did this Jamais Vu study wrote an uh, article about Jamais Vu and Deja Vu and stuff. And they did their best to sort of explain how that stuff works. But they really did not, I did not understand sort of like the, they, they sort of like, 
gave me a pat on the head answer like well you know it has to do with your memory system and when it's not quite firing the way you want it gives you but i want to know more about what it means that you get more jamais vu than i do so maybe i need to dig a little deeper into that one jamais vu is an emergent property of the brain uh there it is have you ever gotten this where you've written a word you know it's correct you've used it before it might even be a simple word a short word and you just stare at it and you think what is this bizarre word how could it possibly be spelled this way and what is it what i don't understand what's going on has that ever happened to you yeah i mean I, my gear moment you mean yeah i i do have it sometimes i definitely have i can't think of it a specific example but it does but not often and much more rarely than deja vu for example which i get from time to time my kids um it's interesting because I was talking about this with my kids and, you know, kids aren't always the most reliable reporters, but my nine-year-old son says that he gets deja vu like once a day, which is really interesting. I bet he does. It's interesting. One of the arguments they said of why it's adaptive, why it's good to have jamais vu is that it's a mechanism to keep you out of cognitive loopholes or merry-go-rounds or something like that. Like, like, let's say you get going on something and you just get, you, whoa, look at that thing. It's going around in a circle. Oh, look at that. Look at that. Look at that. Like, it's a way of like making something after you see it a certain number of times, your brain gives you a little refresh. Like, what are you doing? Like, are should you still be in this little moment? And so if you're looking at the word the 30 times, that's not normal. Like you shouldn't be doing that. Right. And so no wonder your brain gives you a little kick and says, stop it. I'm not going to give you the same information. I'm not going to keep telling you the same thing you've heard 30 times. I'm going to give you something different so we can do something else and you can do something more interesting because we're, we've, there's nothing here for us. Maybe there was a lot of hypnotists running around uh, 100,000 years ago and our ancestors that could repel hypnotists uh, survive, had a better chance of surviving. So they have this uh, anti-hypnosis trigger. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's an anti-hypnosis trigger. I always had a fear after watching an episode of Dukes of Hazard when Luke Duke was in his hospital bed and he was hypnotized against his will. I always worried that that would happen to me, that I would be hypnotized against my will. And I have carried that fear ever since. And that's why you don't have a Confederate flag on your car. <laughs> one of the one of the reasons. One of the only reasons. <laughs> Dan, this has been informative. I I told you it was going to be a terrible one. No, I'm just kidding. It was a good one. I like this conversation. I wanted to talk to you so badly about that AI stuff, and I'm glad you took it deeper. I wanted to, like, I thought I kind of had my head around it, and I knew why it was interesting, but then you took it a little farther and made it more about our brains, and so I really appreciate that. So thank you for taking time with me this week. I, I like this one. See, my take on that is I attempted to sound intelligent because I this is something I should know about being a computer scientist. And I probably sounded like an idiot. See, that's my view on how it went and that you'll never want to do another podcast recording live appearance with me again. That's my takeaway from this. Well, we'll see in a week when we look back and people say, that's the legendary one. Don't go back to to listen to the other Dan Riskin one. Go back to just last Dan Riskin one because that's a good one. Recursive. I like it. Self-referential, for lack of a better word. Mm. I like recursive humor. One of my favorite comedy things is it's on Mr. Show. Have you ever seen that show? It's a... a uh, Daniel Cross, David Cross show. Yeah. Along with Bob Odenkirk. And there's a thing where it's the pre-recorded call-in show. So the call-in show airing on TV is actually last week's. They pre-record it. Okay. And so, but people call incorrectly because they're calling with what they see on TV. So there's the number on the screen, but you're supposed to call in with next week's topic uh -huh. because what you're watching is last week's and nobody understands it. Not even the guests. And, David Cross freaks out, and at the very end, he pulls up the TV to show what the show should be, but in the previous week, he also did that, and the previous week, he also did that, and so it does that thing with the VCR where it kind of like is a bit trippy, 
And yeah, I, I can't really explain it that well, but also every week he has less hair because he's pulling out his hair so angry that people don't get it. And then the final thing is the first week where he's like, well, we didn't get any calls, but that makes sense because of this format. I hope next week will go better. And it's, yeah, that's one of my favorite things of all time the pre-taped call-in show yeah you could tell the writers were very proud of themselves and then they like made an excel spreadsheet and then they figured out how it was all going to work and made it and everyone i've showed it to doesn't find it funny at all <laughs> well you're you're maybe you should just tell people about it because i thought that was entertaining maybe it's better than maybe your experience of it and the highlight reel that you pull out of it, it works better than what they drummed up with their spreadsheet do you ever get this in science where I get it as, a, as like creative comedy, whatever, um, where I see something and it's so good, I'm almost angry that I saw it because then I can't do it. And I, I feel like I could do a better job, but just the idea itself is where the gold nugget is. Like an idea so good that when executed on, you think this is the best idea I've ever gotten. I could execute on it better. But the real intelligence and the real genius is in, is in the uh, fathoming of the idea in and of itself, which I can't do because it'll just be copying it. Do you ever get that in science where you read a paper and you're like, these fuckers did such a good job figuring out what to study. I could have done a better job, but even just figuring it out was so hard. Yeah, I mean, there, I do get it with science, but I with science, like they're just clearly way smarter than me. Like people that come up with really elegant experiments, but I, I often have it when I'm listening to people do improv because there's a thing about improv that it sounds so easy and you listen to people doing it, you're like oh it would be so easy to improv and be that funny it'd be so easy to just like make jokes and off the cuff like that but i know full well that i would not be as funny as those people are when they do their improv so that's that's where i feel it mostly it's all about the bag of tricks i call it it's like okay it's improvised it's all fresh every time but there's a hundred ways in which they already know how to execute on jokes and do crowd work you know yeah. For example, when I was doing stand-up, if anyone ever interrupted me vulgarly, I'd say, do you kiss your mother with that tongue? And that was like, and people were like, aha, that's so funny. You're in the moment and, and kissing a mother with a tongue and they're swearing. It's a, And it's like, no, I do that every, and most shows I don't get interrupted by someone who swears at me. But when I do, I use it. And so right. good improv, it's like, it's exactly like that. It's just a huge bag of tricks, as I call it. It's not fresh and new every time. But yeah, th that's one of those ideas, the pre-taped Colin show that I wish I'd never seen so I could do it. So you could come up with it. Well, maybe you'll do it better. Maybe you'll do maybe maybe you and I since like I come back on the show, maybe next time we let's think about that. Yeah. I mean, we stumbled upon an idea once that I thought was funny where it was like everything we're saying is on a script. Yes. Yeah, in fact, isn't that true right now? Well, yes. See, but the truth is I had done that on a radio show the previous week and I'd done a bad job executing it. And I'm like, no, this is a genius idea. And then I did it again with you and to you it seemed fresh and new and we actually did an amazing job at it. Well, to be fair, you did write it out for me and give it to me ahead of time. <laughs> I'm going to stop talking. Dan, as always, thank you for your time. Thanks for doing the show. No, just read my, And thank you for your time. This has been great. And you mumbling on your breath, I'll just read my, was actually on the script. It's a good joke. It's just to do it more than <laughs> once is... Dan Riskin, PhD, bat scientist, bat biologist. You got the alliteration too. And earthquake expert. You got alliteration on that too. Okay, I'll catch you later, my friend. See you, man.